Hey everyone, this is Michael. In this episode of the Incoming Podcast, I spoke with Ramiro Berardo, a professor at the School of Environment and Natural Resources at The Ohio State University. Ramiro and I spoke about his work using social network analysis to study natural resource governance, with a particular focus on estuaries. Social network analysis is an increasingly popular tool in the study of resource governance, as we increasingly understand that relationships among people matter at least as much as any inherent qualities that they bring to a situation. Or, as Ramiro put it, it reflects the fact that our observations are in fact not independent, as many of our statistical models would assume. Connectivity has also become a core focus in the study of social ecological systems, and I asked Ramiro about the growing study of social ecological networks. Finally, I asked Ramiro about the impressive effort he has put into online teaching in the era of Zoom and Zoom fatigue. This is the In Common Podcast. Um, so, Ramiro, can we get back to something you mentioned uh, earlier on, which is um, when you went to the U.S.? So you grew up in Argentina. You went and got your bachelor's degree in Argentina, I understand. Yep. And I'd love to hear about your process of getting that education, what led you to want to move to the U.S., and then you got your Ph.D. It's in 2006 from Florida State? I got, yeah, December 2006. That's right. I'd love to just hear your own account of what that process was like for you and, and why you're making the decisions you did to ultimately get that PhD. And was yeah. it in political science or? Yeah, it was in political okay. science. So I did my, you know, I started college back in 92. Um, I went to this very small um, university, a Catholic university of Cordoba in the middle of Argentina. And, you know, I ended up going there because it was the, the only university that actually had a political science program um, um, in, this, in the middle of the country, basically. I am from that province originally, uh, from a little town called Rio Cuarto. Anyways, I moved to Cordoba. I go to college there for four years. And in my second year um, there, I met a professor uh, of mine who was my sociology professor who had... She was the director of this research institute that functioned uh, in the School of Political Science. And she was looking for research assistance. And so I decided to, you know, volunteer my time there. And I started getting into research. You know, this is back in the day where everything would be done through surveys, basically. And so, you know, I started just working on surveys, administering surveys and doing, you know, data management and that sort of stuff that usually young research assistants do. And I graduated in 2006, and I actually got a job in that, a paid job in that research institute, and I started just doing research. Um, I got a, a, a doctoral um, grant from the federal government in Argentina. It was a four-year uh, grant to basically pursue PhD uh, studies, and I was going to do that in Argentina, and as part of doing that, I was doing a master's in public administration, and then one day, I'm walking from the classroom to my car, and I see this poster um, in the corridors, and it was a poster for a Fulbright competition, you know? Um, okay. And and I decided, you know, well, it might make sense to, to apply and see what happens this was in 1997, 
1999. And I applied and I, and I, you know, I got the, the fellowship. And so then I had to make a decision of what to do. And I decided to, you know, just keep going in, in political science. Um, you know, um, the way the system works in, in a place like Argentina, it's very different than, um, than in the U.S., for instance. You know, it's very common for somebody like me, for instance, to do a bachelor's degree in political science, a master's degree in political science, a PhD in political science. You know, it's like you have to... Okay. Um, you have to focus on something. Uh, it's kind of a silly way of doing it, but anyways, that's that's pretty much the culture down there, and um, and that's what I did. You know, I came to the U.S. I did a master's in political science and a PhD in political science. My idea was to go back to Argentina. You know, I have all my family there, my friends. Um, so yeah, so. Um, you know, and also I came to the U.S. to do work on something that I thought was going to do what's going to be my path. And it ended up not being that. So my, my goal was to study, you know, um, how local governments operate in, in context of you know, fiscal crisis, uh, which is the topic that I was interested in when I was back in Argentina, because, you know, uh, many towns and, and, uh, the provincial government in my province were going through this like horrible fiscal time, basically. So that's, that was my area of research back there. Uh, but once I came to, to the U.S., uh, after my first year in the Ph.D., I, I met the professor that would be my advisor. And, um, and he was, uh, his name is John Scholz. He, he uh, retired back in 2013, I think. Um, so anyway, I started working with him. And I got into, you know, collective action problems and common pool resources and collaboration and conflict and all this kind of stuff that I do now. Um, Mark Lubell was there too at Florida State as a young assistant professor. So I met him there. And then later on, I ended up, you know, working with him. I know that you've had him in the podcast uh, before. So, yeah, so it was very serendipitous that I, you know, ended up doing what I'm doing. Mm. Um, and then the other thing that was like really, you know, a lucky, a lucky uh, strike was that um, when I was in my last year in the PhD program, the University of Arizona basically was looking for somebody, a political scientist doing water related research, water policy. And, you know, I was just working on that for my dissertation. So, uh, you know, the planets really aligned for me to get my my first job. Um because I was going to go back to Argentina and instead I decided to, you know, apply to that job and I ended up, you know, getting it. And so then I moved from Florida to Arizona. That was in 2007, actually. So that's Tucson? Tucson, Arizona. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And it was, you know, great, um, uh, a good department. It was the department of political science, but while I was there, um, Basically, the Department of Political Science and the School of Public Affairs merged, and then the School of Government and Public Policy was born. Um, that's where I met Adela Schlager, who oh uh, yeah, yeah, who I didn't know until then, and she's become one of my you know best friends in in academia. Um, Adela's great. Yeah, the, uh, yeah, I I love Adela. So, yeah, we overlapped there for a, a number of years, and then in two thousand. 13, I moved. 
so I've moved a lot and, and I've had moves that, um, you know, some people would consider questionable moves, uh, moves in the sense that, you know, for instance, my move from um, Arizona to Wisconsin was when um, I, I was almost going up for tenure. So, you know, uh, mm. hindsight is twenty twenty. I probably should have stayed at Arizona and, you know, just gotten tenure there and then then move. But I, I moved uh, before getting tenure. So that kind of slowed me down a little bit, you know. Well, Madison has those lakes on at the at the at the Union, right? So that's hard to beat. But I didn't move to Madison. I moved oh. to. Uh, so, sorry, I should have clarified that. Yeah, because everybody assumes that it's like Wisconsin Madison. It was the School of Freshwater Sciences at the University of Wisconsin Milwaukee. Um, okay. And you know they had it's a great place too. You know it's a, a, a school right on the shore of Lake Michigan. A lot of natural scientists. Um, with their own, you know, research vessel to do right. uh, research in, in Lake Michigan. Uh, they had created this Center for Water Policy, which is the reason why I moved there. Um, and so, yeah, no, it was it was great. But Arizona was definitely great. And, you know, we we missed living in Tucson. Tucson was a really cool town. And then, and I had really good colleagues too, you know, really nice uh people very smart and and I know that they're doing incredibly well I mean that school keeps growing and there's a lot of like good people uh, mm -hmm. from from the school so yeah that you probably know a bunch of them just because they sort of like share uh, a lot of their history with with you in terms of where they come from and the, the people they know you know yeah I know a bunch of people there and at Arizona State University which has just been growing a ton in like the last 10 years yes in these directions yeah, and actually, I, I remember, you know, this must have been like 2008 or nine, when Arizona State was, uh, you know, creating this, I think it was called the Center for Institutional Diversity or something like that. That's right. Uh, with, with Marco Johnson yeah. and Marty Andres and uh, Abby York, too. And anyways, Lynn Ostrom came to town, um, and she actually came to uh, Tucson to visit Adela. And mm -hmm. it was nice to, you know, invite me to go to lunch with them. And that's the first time I met Lynn, um, just through Adela. And then Adela, 2010 and 11, I moved back to Argentina for two years. And, uh, and I invited Adela to come over. And so Adela came for a few days. I think it was a week or, or two. And, uh, yeah, she gave a seminar at the Catholic University. So, you know, we were able to basically bring some of the scholarship that was being done here in the U.S. to an audience down there that were not exposed to the, you know, to the IAD, for instance. And, and then, you know, that gave us the opportunity to give people some exposure to it. This is before uh, Eleanor got the Nobel Prize in economics. So, you know, she, she was very well known here in the U.S., obviously, and in other places too. But perhaps in Argentina, you know, there wasn't yep. that much awareness, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and just to interrupt a second, for our listeners, the IAD is the Institutional Analysis and Development Framework, which is this big popular framework that came out of the Ostrom Workshop and that a lot of us use in our work. Yeah, correct. Uh, so you're a political scientist and you shared two papers with me and one of them was published in Public Administration Review and the other one was uh, in the American Journal of Political Science. For people who are listening to the podcast, 
what is the difference between political science and public administration? Is public administration a subset of political science? Political scientists yeah. who study essentially behavior within bureaucracies or like is is this worth trying to make sense over or what? Yeah, you know, that's an in, that's a really interesting question because I think it's going to, you know, the answer is going to depend on who you ask, right? Uh, for a lot of people, you know, if you think in terms of like a Venn diagram, I would say that, um, you know, public administration and public policy are, I don't know if subfields is, is the right term, but at least they're, they're part of political science, broadly considered, you know. Um, and in fact, if you go to like the American Political Science Association, you'll see that there are, you know, sections on public policy, uh, section uh, sections on you know, public administration, so uh, public management. These are all different, you know, slightly different fields, but they are all really overlapping to to a great extent. So I tend to think about myself as a policy scholar. Um, who operates without the confines of political science. Now, I, but I also know other policy scholars who probably would tell you that, you know, public policy, it's, it's a separate field. Um, if you talk to, I'm sure that if you talk to, to people that are, you know, working in public affairs schools, for instance, um, you know, they will give you a different answer. For, for them, probably public management, public administration, public policy are you know, different enough to be considered their their own field. Um, and, and I definitely know uh, some people in political science for whom public policy would be just a very minor subfield, you know. So if you talk, if you go to like the, the uh, I guess the, the biggest political science departments, usually, you know, you'll see people doing American politics, international relations, comparative politics, political theory, and you know, some departments, but not all, they will have public policy or they will have methodology. Um, not many will have something like public administration. So, uh, so I guess if you if you uh, just ask this question to a quote unquote pure political scientist, um, who knows what answer you would get? You know, what I'm hearing from Mr. Miro is that you consider yourself an impure political scientist. <laughs> yeah, to some extent, you know. I mean, think about it. I mean, I'm I'm in a school of environmental natural resources. I started my career in a political science department, and I gradually, you know, but surely moved away from that. And and the reason is because I thought that the the, the question, the, the substantive interest that I had. Um, it was going to be better to be surrounded by people that have a very different training from the training that I have um, to understand, you know, the, the, the practical consequences of my research. Um, and that's, and that's also the reason that, you know, if you look at my CV, you'll see that in, in the first, you know, three, four years, you know, most of my publications were in political science departments, uh, uh, sorry, uh, journals. And then, you know, that has become less and less the case. I still publish in, in policy journals and, and those sorts of journals, but I also publish in journals like, you know, ecology and society that right. have a, a broader, you know, audience, I would say, and a broader uh, set of, you know, disciplinary backgrounds in the authors that they publish. So, yeah, so in that sense, I guess I am an impure political science or, uh, you know, 
yeah, it's, it's sort of like a, a diluted version, you could say. I, I, I know that that, you know, carries a negative connotation, but I'm fine with it. Yeah. So another qu a related question I had, Romeo, for you is, so you've been focusing on estuaries for a while, you said. So I'm interested in, you know, why estuaries? Why the environment? Was this yeah. kind of like serendipity? Is this because of something that happened when you were five, which is honestly uh, often the case for a lot of us? Is it right. had some formative experience? I'm interested in your focus on the environment. Well, I got I got to to estuaries just because my advisor in grad school was working with this uh, database on the National Estuary Program that actually, you know, Mark Lubell was instrumental in, you know, collecting that data when he was back in grad school. He was at Stony Brook. I think this is the late 1990s. Um, so I just come to the PhD program and I start working with my advisor and he has this, this beautiful, you know, database that had, you know, measures of collaboration across different estuaries in the United States at two different you know, points in time. So it allowed me the opportunity to work with this longitudinal data that, you know, doesn't come across too easily. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so, but I was interested in collective action problems. You know, how, how do people solve cooperation problems basically? And so I just happened to, to use this database on estuaries and then, and then I kept working with that database. I published a, a bunch of papers with that database. And then I moved to, you know, other, uh, uh, you know, sources of water, you know, so, you know, I've, you know, I've done um, research in the Uruguay River, which is an international river in, in Argentina, and I'm doing some research on the Pilcomayo River, also a river in northern Argentina that is shared by Argentina, Paraguay, and Bolivia. Um, and then I've done, you know, you know, other, you know, work here in the U.S., um, uh, with the Maumee River Basin, for instance, which is a, a river basin in northern Ohio that contributes a lot of runoff, uh, fertilizer runoff to Lake Erie, and that mm. triggers you know, harmful algal blooms in Lake Erie. So I, I moved away from estuaries, I would say, uh, but really just to other, you know, other uh, landscapes where water is still very much right. important. Now, I, I mean, I'm also interested in, in other, you know, in land use and climate change. I mean, once you are doing research on on a thing that is such such a basic thing as you know collective action problems, hopefully many of the lessons you gather from the research can travel, right? To exactly. Other, yeah. To other areas. Um, so I, you know, I'm not too concerned with uh, feeling limited in that sense. You know. I, you know, there's a, there's a, there is a limited amount of time we have in life. And so, you know, you have to make a, a decision on whether you want to uh, branch out or not. And those decisions are driven by so many things we don't control sometimes, you know. I mean, you can plan all you want, but at the end of the day, if you're in a highly collaborative environment like we are, um, you know, opportunities for research might come when you talk to somebody, you know, having a cup of coffee in a conference and that might totally. take you away from what you thought you were going to be doing the next two years. You know, I, you know, the last three years I've been doing research on fracking with, uh, with Tanya Heikila hmm. and, um, and Chris Weibel and Hong Tao Yi here at uh, OSU. So, you know, Tanya and Chris have been working on fracking for a long time. They are at uh, UC Denver. 
fracking and conflict. And that's something that, you know, I was interested in learning about. And so I was lucky enough that these, you know, top scholars would agree to let me work with them. Um, and so, you know, that has uh, the linkage to, I guess, water management is more tenuous than the work that I had done before. It's mm -hmm. still there, but it's, it's not the same. But it's just a topic that is super interesting. So, you know, as, as long as you're working on things that you feel that you're interested, uh, at least in, in my case, you know, I'm fine with just just sort of like moving randomly in academia, you know. Uh, it's something that probably if advisors listen to this, they will uh, they would they would tell their um, their mentees, hey, did you hear what that guy said? Don't do that, you know. <laughs> and there's that that's the absolute wrong way about going. But um, I, I mean, I've always operated like this, you know, in my career, you know, and I've I've gotten lucky. So you know, just just work with nice people and work on topics that are interesting, and then. Just go where the research takes you. want to keep working on it. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, so um, I'd like to then ask you, Ramiro, about the social network approach you take to um, at least a, a bunch of these systems. Did you start to apply a social network lens during your PhD? Yes, I did. Back, back when this wasn't yet... I would say, you know, popular in political science, at least. This was something that, you know, social psychologists and sociologists and anthropologists had been dealing with for a long time, right? But in political science, uh, social network analysis was sort of like a, a new thing um, that I would say, you know, started happening more and more back in the 80s and 90s, particularly in Europe, um, public administration scholars and public policy scholars started just, you know, using network language more and more. And then they started adopting these methodological approaches. And then, you know, like a little contagion effect, you know, it just it just moved and made it to the U.S. And, and so, yeah, so when I started, you know, when I started getting into it, um, there was no way to, to really be formally trained um, in my program on this. So it was, you know, a lot of like trial and error and sort of try to, you know, teach yourself how to do it. Then um, uh, we actually created a section, a political network section of the American Political Science Association back in 2007 and eight, And that was a great thing because that section has, a, a, you know, an annual meeting in the summers where students can actually take seminars and you know get trained a little bit on that so i started getting training training in different ways i went to the netherlands also in 2006 to do a seminar on stochastic actor oriented models basically models to you know just model the evolution of networks so you know i i started you know learning bits and pieces here and there mm -hmm. And so it's been a, a really interesting journey. You know, I think for grad students nowadays, you know, there's so much more for them to get, you know, really well-trained. So, you know, I have a, a, a couple of students uh, that are much better trained than I, than I was, you know. Uh, mm -hmm. So that's nice to see that the, that the field has been advancing in, in that way. So, Ramiro, for grad students who might be listening, are you thinking of like ICPSR at Michigan or what are some resources that really strike you as being worth pursuing? 
Yeah, so ICPSR, um, they have um, they they have social network analysis uh, courses. I know uh, Lorian Jasney, who's now in uh, in um, England. Mm-hmm. She thought that a couple of times. Um, then, of course, you can take the you know the INSNA, uh, what is it, the International Network Studies Association. Um, they have a yearly meeting too that has a great set of courses and workshops to take. Those are great if you go there because also people come from very different, you know, typical disciplines. So you're going to run into statisticians, mathematicians, you know, sociologists, political scientists, uh, etc. Right. Um, and then, like I said, you know, the, the American Political Science Association, the, the political networks uh, section has this, this great workshop. So there's, there's, you know, multiple opportunities for people to actually um, learn about social network analysis. There are actually a few interesting courses online. Um, I remember Coursera used to have one. So anyway, so yeah, there's, there's many ways of just getting properly trained. Okay, uh, there's two, there's two things I kind of would love to do with this part of the interview, Ramiro. One is to, I guess, just nerd out a little bit with you about social network analysis, and the other is to try to understand what are some conclusions that you've reached by applying that technique to estuaries in particular. Like, what are the stories that you've been able to tell with this methodology? Okay, so a social network, you're imagining a social system that has nodes. It's connected by ties or edges. And um, you can think about doing an analysis of uh, an entire network. So I've, I've dabbled in social network analysis, kind of enough to be dangerous and hopefully enough to ask you some, some meaningful questions. Um, so, so you can kind of, you know, you have the, these sociograms, if that's what they're called, of like these beautiful pictures, right? Like yeah. when, when it became popular, I feel like part of the popularity of it, honestly, was driven by just these extraordinary graphs that people could make of these systems. They're really quite... Um, I mean, they're beautiful and you can also do an analysis of, of individual nodes to try to understand like what is happening to basically compare different nodes in a network. I'm also aware of this distinction of thinking about the network as kind of an independent variable. So you're trying to use the network to explain say outcomes for nodes and you're, and you can also do an analysis that tries to explain, looks at the network as a dependent variable. It says, how do we explain how the structure of this network came about? How am I doing so far? Great, great. No, you got it. Okay. I want to connect this Ramiro to um, the questions you're trying to answer, right? Because in one of the papers that you shared with me, you're talking about, right, um, right, the title is Understanding What Shapes a Polycentric Governance System. So... Uh, I've talked to Mark Lubell a bit about polycentricity before. He actually has this nice blog post that I, I liked from several years back where he says, look, isn't kind of everything polycentric? Right. <laughs> and I really yeah. liked it because I've actually struggled with um, the concept of polycentricity. You know, when Vincent Ostrom and others popularized it, um, there is actually this like powerful statement in one of Vincent Ostrom's old pieces that says we can't assume a priori that a polycentric system does better than a monocentric system. Right. And it feels like somehow we got away from that where it became kind of a panacea where we actually have these a priori arguments about how great polycentricity is. Right. And so I'm interested in 
how you approached the idea of a polycentric system and how effective it was for you to use a social network lens to explore the idea of polycentricity and how it helped you answer the questions you had about collective action. Right. Yeah, that's, well, that's a great question. I'll try, I'll try to answer and we'll see if, if I make sense. But, you know, when we think about, or at least the way people like Mark Lubell and, and I think about polycentric systems, and this obviously is not new, right? This comes from Vince and, and others. You know, these are complex systems where there's multiple centers where decisions can be made, right? So we know that, um, you know, metropolitan areas and beyond, you know, these systems are really complex. There's many of these centers um, that are, you know, you know, theoretically independent from each other, but functionally interdependent, right? What happens in one of these places might affect what happens in another one, right? So if you have, you know, let's say a, you know, regional planning council and you have, you know, 50 organizations participating in some meeting there, and then a week from then you have a meeting of the local city council and 20 of those organizations show up in this new meeting, well, their behavior there is sort of like conditioned by what happened in this other place where they actually interacted with each other, right? Mm -hmm. And and I mean, that's a non-controversial assumption, right? We human beings, the more we know each other, the, the more our relationships change for good and bad, you know? So when you start thinking about polycentric systems that way, you realize that you have to be able to observe that structure, right? I mean, if I if I if I want to know whether Michael and and myself, you know, you and I, you know, have a high chance of working together, well, I would look at you know, conferences that we both attend, right? I mean, and the the greater the number of conferences that we attend, uh, the more likely we are, in, you know, to run into each other and maybe strike a conversation and and the friendship, right? Um, right? If we don't overlap at all, you know, well, then that likelihood. Of, of collaboration goes down significantly. So we would argue, well, you have to look at the whole structure of that, you know, complex governance system. And that's one way in which social network analysis can help you out because through social network analysis, you can fully map every node that is participating in that in that system. Now, the, here there are at least two types of nodes, right? Because we have or, you know, organizations and the decision-making arenas where they participate. So we have a bimodal network, right? That's what we have a bimodal network. Yeah, it's a, okay. a network composed of two modes, which obviously, you know, um, in social network analysis, most of the emphasis until, you know, quite recently was on modeling one-mode networks where all the nodes are of the same kind, right? Um, but then we have these, yeah, bimodal networks. They're also called affiliation uh, uh, networks, basically, you know, where you are basically seeing who, you know, how many events um, some nodes share, right? So it can be, you know, people going to parties together, uh, students taking classes together, you know. You might share two or, or three or ten classes with somebody else. Uh, it might be, you know, organizations participating in a complex governance system, a polycentric system. Um, so 
that's where my interest in using social network analysis comes from, because I think it's a good tool to fully understand the structure of, the, of these systems. Because at the end of the day, if you're going to understand how a complex governance system operates, you need to understand the structure of it and what we call the function of it too, right? So with Mark Lubell, you probably talked about the ecology of games theory. Yeah, it's a theory of, of polycentricity, right? Um, where basically these this decision-making centers are you know, policy games that people play, right? Um, and so, you know, though there's, there's functions in these systems, right? One of the functions is collaboration. Another function is learning about policy problems. Another function is to, you know, distribute the benefits of participating in the system, you know, uh, who wins, who loses, that kind of stuff. So with social network analysis, you can actually observe the structure of the system and then figure out, like you said, whether particular characteristics of that structure affect those other variables that we care about, you know, whether people collaborate with each other, whether people learn how to trust each other, whether people think that decision-making processes are fair to everybody who's involved, that sort of thing. And then, of course, you can take those changes in those individual level variables, meaning changes at the nodal level, and see whether that feeds back into the structure of the system, whether that's you know causing the system to change in some meaningful ways. I would assume that if you participate in a system and you feel like the system is not fair, well, you might withdraw from the system, right? And if you withdraw from the system, then the structure of the system changes. So that, that to me is what makes social network analysis interesting, that it gives you the chance to observe this, you know, this co-evolving relationship between structure and function. Does that make sense? It does, yes. Um, in, again, in the work that you share with me, Ramiro, it seems like one of the, the organizing ideas that you present in there is this idea of the risk hypothesis. Right, yes. Which seems to be how you kind of implement some of the ideas you're talking to me about now, this relationship between structure and function. Yeah. Um, would it be helpful for us to try to unpack that? Yeah. Do you want me to like very quickly describe what the risk hypothesis is? That'd be great. Yeah, so it's basically this idea that based on the risk that people perceive that there is in their you know, social neighborhood, that that's going to affect the types of interactions they create with others. So, and in this case, we're particularly talking about the risk of uh, defection. So let's say, let's just say that... Um, you and I are in some sort of social relationship and we are both thinking about using water uh, from an aquifer, right? We're both farmers and let's say that we are in the, you know, we're farmers in the Ogallala aquifer. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's not enough water there to last forever. And so, you know, now we have this, uh, this situation in which I'm thinking whether it makes sense to um, use a lot of water or not, and you're thinking the same, and, you know, we're in touch with each other, and we have, you know, we have told each other that we're going to be careful with it. But, you know, I'm not sure whether that's the case or not. So if I think that Michael is somebody who's likely to defect on his commitment to me, uh, the risk perception is going to be big, and that is going to affect the way I relate to others 
um, in my social network. For instance, there might be a third farmer that both of us know. I'm going to create a tie with that farmer just because that would basically constrain you uh, based on the reputational loss that you would sustain if you defected on me. You know, I would, I would, I would basically tell our common acquaintance that you did a wrong thing, right? So the basic idea of the risk hypothesis is that people create different structures in networks based on their perceptions of risk. If I perceive that risk is very high, I'm going to create these bonded structures where I try to make sure that everybody knows each other. Um, so then the reputational cost of, of cheating basically goes up. And if I don't, if I think that the risk of defection is really low, then I can, you know, pursue other strategies in my network, basically. Um, so, so this is about, the risk hypothesis about how attributes of the nodes, in this case, perceptions of risk, affect the structure of the system, right? Um, trying to frame it based on the discussion that, that we had before, right? So structure can affect attributes or individual attributes, and individual attributes might affect um, the structure. And the, the, the risk hypothesis is about basically how the structure of the network changes, how the structure of a polycentric system changes, right? So this is very much, or, or at least to some extent, a game theoretic framing here. When we're talking about risk, we're talking about risk of defection in the example you gave, which is essentially a CPR appropriation game. Exactly. Yeah. A prisoner dilemma, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so you used another term, Ramiro, just now that um, you've used a lot in some of your work anyway, which is this distinction between, um, so we have in, the, in social network theory, there's this distinction between bonding and bridging capital. I don't want this to be right. totally a tutorial on like social network analysis, but I think it's quite interesting. Yeah. Um, so I'm familiar with, you know, so bonding and bridging social capital, um, bonding is kind of what it sounds like. It's, it's buddies getting together. It's mm -hmm. feels more informal a lot of the time. Um, there's more frequent interactions, et cetera. Bridging is more, it's also feels like bonding is more intra-group bridging for feels more intergroup, um, maybe more formalized, et cetera. Um, right. So you use both these concepts in your work, but you also introduced this distinction that I had not heard of, which is it's weak and strong bonding capital. Is that right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I used that in, yeah, in research with, with two mode networks where we are, you know, observing the polycentric system. Yes. Uh, yeah. So bonding and bridging, it, th these are very, uh, you know, it's a very old terminology, actually comes from like sociology, you know, back in the 70s. Right. Um, and so I was just trying to use bridging and bonding to talk about how these these structures, you know, uh, of polycentric systems change. And then I thought, well, but we're if we're going to do it, I mean, there's got to be different gradations of, sure. is that a word, gradation? Uh, anyway, <laughs> um, yeah. um, of the, uh, of these concepts, you know, and you know, it can be there can be bonding if both of us go to um, to a, a conference together, right? And and we see each other and we have a coffee. Um, that's a it's a form of bonding. But of course, if we go to two different conferences and we repeat that behavior, then our bonding becomes stronger, right? So so there's got to be a way of not only observing bonding based on links in a network, but how often those links get repeated, um, how many joint 
uh, events we go to, that sort of thing, right? Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, so that's it's you know, bonding can be weak or can be uh, strong, I guess. Okay. And you know, think about your group of friends, right? Everybody has a group of friends. Well, how often do you see your friends? And how often do you see your friends, all of them in the same room? You know, if you if you just have a meeting with your friends once a year because you're celebrating your birthday, there, there's bonding there. Um, but if you happen it's to just see your friends every week, you know, go for beers, well, that bonding obviously uh, grows, right? It becomes stronger. Right. Okay. And so there's this connection between this risk hypothesis and these different types of capital as well, right? If I understand correctly. Yeah. 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 Because, I mean, well, first of all, the risk hypothesis is, is really, I mean, uh, it's very simple. It's very simple and it's simplistic, right? It's it might be oversimplifying things, you know. Um, and so, what what I've been trying to do since 2010 is basically add to to I guess the explanatory power of the risk hypothesis and how much the risk hypothesis is valuable to understand how polycentric systems operate. It started very basic, right? It said. The, the, the greater the level of perceived risk, the more bonding capital you should choose. Mm -hmm. But again, it's very simplistic because, you know, um, complex governance systems, polycentric systems, um, they're not only about, you know, nodes and the places where they interact. It's also about things like the topics they care about. So it's not really a two-mode network. It's a three-mode network if you want, right? It's now it's nodes and places and topics, right? So I might go to, again, a regional planning council and maybe all we talk about there is water quality. And if I go to a different place, it might be water quality, land use and effects of climate change on, you know, sea rise levels or whatever, right? So in, in some of these places, the discussions are much more complex than in others. That also should affect uh, the relationship between perceptions of risk and behavior, right? Um, and so, and and so, I guess um, the the issue I'm trying to uh, to highlight here is that we're still in the process of fleshing out the the explanatory power of the risk hypothesis because in its original form is too simplistic. Mm -hmm. So we're doing just to give you an example, we're doing uh, some research with that is led by. Um, Michelle Barnes, who's at James Cook University in Australia, and uh, Angela Guerrero, who now is at the Stockholm Resilience Center. And what we're doing is basically trying to extend the risk hypothesis from pure social risk, which is what I've been describing up to now, and pair that with perceptions of ecological risk. So for instance, uh, and we are doing that with databases. Um, do you know Steve Alexander? He's in. Uh, I had a conversation with him two days ago. Oh, okay, great. So some data that that Steve has and that Michelle have on small fisheries, and basically what we're trying to do is, you know, there's two dimensions of risk: the the social dimension, right? Do I trust Mike to, you know, stop overfishing? Yep. And there's also the the ecological side of the risk. Um, which is whether certain species are more overfished than others or, you know, are likely to disappear and that kind of stuff. And those are related, right? Like the higher the social risk, the higher the ecological risk in the story. Exactly. But it might not be the case that those are necessarily related. 
You know, you might be overfishing um, a species that is not an endangered species. But if you keep overfishing it, you're going to get it to be uh, at a point where it is overfished. Mm -hmm. So, you know, high social, high social risk doesn't necessarily mean high ecological risk, at least in the short term, but it might mean that in the long term. So how does this interaction between social and ecological risk affects the way people behave? We don't know, right? We have no idea. But it's important to know because only by knowing that interaction, we can actually figure out whether the polycentric system is well-equipped to solve the problem or not. So there's a lot of stuff that is being done currently with social network analysis, with exponential random graph modeling for you know, two mode networks and beyond um, that uh, this team of people that I work with is, is working on. Um, and I think there's like really good stuff that is going to come out of that. But it's definitely, you know, an ongoing conversation. You know, we, sure, yeah. we are just scratching the surface right now, I think. I mean, it sounds exciting. I mean, I, so Ramiro, you had mentioned that um, most of the social network analyses that have been done have been unimodal. And my impression is that that's because it's easier. Um, and when you start adding dimensions in most places, things start to get harder. You talk about this bimodal network and now what we're talking about trimodal. Can you just kind of keep adding dimensions? Is that a thing? <laughs> well, um, I guess you can. Yeah, it's totally, it's definitely harder. And, uh, and basically once you go over, at least currently, once you go over like two mode networks, you are, sort of limited to counting structures, you know, rather than just, you know, modeling them, although that's changing. Um, but yeah, it, you know, I guess like any field, as time passes, uh, people figure out new ways of new tools and new ways to answer their questions. And then the methodology sort of, the methodological side of things just sort of catches up to that. Mm. Uh, it is more difficult, and it also it depends on how you collect the data, right? Because if you're just collecting data with surveys, for instance, and you're trying to model a whole network that is really complex, where there's a lot of games, for instance, well, what do you do? You, did you create a list of you know 200 different decision-making arenas and ask people to tell me in which one of these 200 you participate? You know what you're going to have is a big drop in the number of people that actually answered the survey. Right. So it depends on how you how you collect data. It's definitely more complex in that sense, right? That you are all of a sudden collecting just more, more data and it can be very cumbersome. Um, but the methodological side of things, I think it's it's getting better, but we're still quite limited, you know, at least in my understanding of things, you know, once you go over two mode networks, um, the tools we have to statistically model those networks is more limited. Okay. Yeah, I, my understanding is that uh, a big limitation to doing social network analysis is just getting enough data. That in a lot of systems, it's just hard to get enough of the the, da the data on the network, particularly if you're trying to understand the whole network. Yeah, and there's also the issue of missing data, you know, which in social network analysis is particularly obnoxious and and the validity of the findings quickly decays as as you have missing data uh, more than in just regular econometric you know uh, modeling right 
Um, so that's another thing, right? If you if you have a, a survey that has fifty percent response rate, you know, you would say, well, that's great, right? Fifty percent, it's insanely good. Um, but then the measures that you obtain from doing uh, analysis, like the ones you talked about at the beginning, you know, just descriptive analysis of calculating centrality measures, for instance, those measures become very unreliable um, as you drop just a, a small amount of data. So that's the other thing, you know, and, and so we have to be better at thinking how to actually collect that data. We've done, me included, a lot of uh, stuff, you know, just basically using surveys, but where the response rate is great, but not not great for social network analysts. Um, now I think, you know, we're starting to leverage other sources of data much more than we used to because we have all this, you know, textual data uh, available online that we didn't use to. So now if you want to study, you know, how people interact with each other in these uh, decision-making centers, well, you know, many of these places, they take minutes in every meeting they have and then they put them online, right? So you can actually go and mine that that type of information and sort of replicate perfectly, um, well, not perfectly, but close to it anyways, um, you know, these this social interactions, right? I can read the, the minutes of a meeting and see whether uh, organization A is heavily opposing the stance that organization B is taking, for instance, right? Um, and and, and in, that ex, uh, in that sense, I would say that kind of data is better than survey data, data anyways, because with surveys, you know, people, people might tell you something that they want you to think rather than what they really think. Right. Um, but once you start just going through, uh, you know, text, you know, textual sources or archives and things like that, you know, people usually, if they go to a meeting, they are more likely to, uh, to really uh, portray their positions in a more sincere way. Sometimes, <laughs> I guess. Um, so, Ramir, there's two questions I want to make sure I ask you before we we wrap up. One is about um, this topic of social ecological network analysis that's been getting a lot of kind of hype in at least like the last five to ten years. And, you know, it's related to what we've been talking about, kind of increasing the complexity of how we conceive of, of networks. Do you have an opinion about social ecological network analysis? Do you think we can really do it? Have you tried it? What do you think? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I've been part of you know groups that have discussed how to improve our approaches to the study of social ecological systems through social network analysis. There was a paper that came out in 2019 that was led by Orian Bodin from the Stockholm Resilience Center. And if you just go and check that paper, basically we're we're advocating for the use of social network analysis to the study to study you know social ecological systems. Um, the good thing about that community is that, at least in my experience, it's a very diverse community um, in terms of the background of the people that are part of it, and so there's a higher likelihood of seeing really meaningful cross pollination from from different fields. Um, and the other thing is that it's it's really a new thing, right? So the the, the jury is still out there, uh, but I think the next 10, 10 years uh, are going to be very very uh, productive in terms of just you know 
producing new, new ways of, of studying social ecological systems through a network approach. All these, uh, all these approaches we were talking about before, methodological approaches, exponential random graph modeling, stochastic actor-oriented models to study these systems longitudinally, they're going to have a, an important role to play in studying social ecological networks. Mm. And then, you know, I, you know, I'm very bad at forecasting what's going to what's going to happen uh, specifically. But I, I, I wouldn't be surprised, you know, if we if we really have this um, this qualitative leap the next decade, just because the the sheer number of people that are working on this area just keep just keeps getting bigger and bigger and you know we have a lot of like really smart people that are coming up with like really new ways of um, thinking about how to study these uh, structures and functions that i was talking about before um, it's a really exciting time for grad students to get into this stuff also because like i was saying at the beginning the the, the opportunities for training are available all over the place and and the community is getting bigger. You know, back in the day, if you were a political scientist studying these kinds of things, you were sort of like isolated and the group was kind of small. But now those communities have become so strong. Um, and also, you know, the journals have recognized the value that comes from this sort of scholarship. So if you if you go to like policy, policy journals, you know, I'm thinking about, you know, a journal like, you know, Policy Studies Journal, for instance, or you know, Public Administration Review, or any of those, or the Journal of Public Administration Research and Theory, the likelihood that they're going to have some article in every issue that uses social network analysis in some way is pretty is pretty sizable, you know. Um, and this this did you know, 15, 20 years ago, this was not the case, and so that tells you something about how this community has has grown, and I think. You know, once you reach that critical mass, things start happening quickly. So, okay, and, and yeah, and, and one thing to to just uh, wrap up this thought. You know, when you look at, we were talking about the IAD at the beginning, right, Lynn Ostrom. And if you go to like her 2009 article on science, you know, social ecological systems, you'll see that you know networks is one of these like second level variables that she identified. But that's all she did, right? She she said networks are important. Okay, well now let's zoom into that, and you'll see that there's like thousands of people working on that one variable uh, that she identified. And so, um, so you know, the sky's the limit, really. I mean, there's 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 not going to be any lack of opportunities for scholars uh, working on this to actually get things done. <laughs> well, I mean, it's great to hear. I think it is one of the more exciting research programs within this like broader network of fields. Before moving on to actually my final question, I'd love to ask you one more question about social network analysis, and it's, of course, a two-parter. What's one moment you've had in doing this type of work where you thought, oh, wow, here's a story I can tell about this system that I couldn't have told without this method? Like, here's what's like this epiphany that I'm having about what's happening in the world? A high, right? And then a low, which is what's a moment where you just think, oh, man, this is... You know, I don't know about how well this tool is working for me right now in this system. Yeah. Well, the epiphany came quite early because the way I was trained as a grad student, you know, it was basically through, you know, OLS and and other, you know, econometric uh, approaches um, where most of the time you have this assumption of the independence, you know, among the units of observations, right? You, that's one of one of the assumptions that 
that yeah, yeah that you that you have to protect right so uh, or that you have to abide by and so to me that it was great but at the same time very limiting right because you have to make an assumption that is really sort of very unrealistic and i know that we're not suppo- we're told not to question assumptions many times or at least we were back in the day when i was a grad student you know that's the way the model works uh, but when i saw that social network approaches were you know explicitly uh, modeling this interdependence i thought well that you know that's great i mean because in the real world people are interdependent and what i do doesn't doesn't depend on, on only on who i am it's just you know it's me and my circumstances like a famous uh, spanish philosopher would say, I don't know if you've heard Ortega y Gasset, yo soy yo y mis circunstancias. I'm, I'm, I am me and my circumstances, right? And, and I think that, you know, social network analysis gets at that. You, mm-hmm. know? Um, you cannot explain my behavior only by looking at me. You have to understand who are my friends or my colleagues and the place where I work. And social network analysis you know, explicitly captures that interdependence. So to me, that was great. Now, in terms of uh, limitations, I was mentioning before, you know, the issue of data collection. And sometimes I feel like, you know, that's the price, the price we pay for using social network analysis approaches is that we have to be so careful in our data collection to the extent that sometimes we have to decline pursuing certain questions just because there's no way to capture all the data that we need to have. So that's sort of it can be a little bit limiting, although there are very good ways of dealing with the issue of missing data in social network analysis. And the other, and the final thing is that, you know, as anything, right, that's my little hammer. So sometimes I question myself about, well, should I be using social network analysis for this? Perhaps there's an easier, more simple way of doing this stuff. And I think, I don't know if you struggle with this at all in your work. I, I do because I've I've gone down. I've I've gone down that path quite a bit, and so you know, I'm a network scholar. Well, what does that mean? You know, do I have to do everything through social network analysis? Probably not, right? There are things that I that I'm interested in learning that just doing it very qualitatively um, with ethnographic uh, work uh, would just help me do, and it'd be probably you know better uh, better work than if I just try to apply you know, social network analysis to the tool just because it's the tool that I use, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's well put. I mean, the, the hammer and nail uh, analogy is is very apt. I mean, we talk about, um, you know, Lynn and others, right, railed against panaceas in the policy context, and yet we all develop our methodological panaceas. And it's like, it's there's there's incentives to do so. It's, you need to market yourself. You need to be able to have certain skills so the, the final question I'd love to ask you, Ramiro, is um, so I followed you on Twitter. I don't know for how long, long enough to uh, be motivated to ask this question. Um, so 2020 was quite hectic and all of us had to adapt in certain ways. And actually, during the last year, we've, we've been asking like guests just how they've been coping with everything that's happening. And and following you on Twitter, I've, I've learned that you have taken the task of of teaching remotely uh, quite seriously. I remember there was a photo of like your setup that you had and it was quite impressive. Yeah. So I'm just <laughs> interested in um, 
I suppose like what lessons you feel like you've learned in adapting uh, to the remote Zoom life that we're all living, you know, because I think you've probably learned a lot that other people could learn from in terms yeah. of what's worked for you and what hasn't, you know, technologically is kind of the most visible, but I'm sure there are some behavioral adjustments that have gone along with those. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I think one one thing that we've learned through the uh, quarantine and this whole ordeal this last year is that people needed ways to escape uh, the insanity of it all. Uh, in my case, you know, um, we have we have two. I, my wife and I, we have two kids. Um, they were eight and five when this whole thing started, and so you know, having to do online classes on Zoom. My wife also has a full-time job. So, you know, and we don't have any family in town. So, you know, it was it was very intense. Um, it continues to be intense. But, as you know, just trying not to go crazy uh, during this time, I thought, well, you know, um, I'm going to try to learn something that I, that I haven't learned up to this point. And I started getting, I've always been like a massive consumer of, documentaries and so i started just taking classes on you know documentary filmmaking just just to do something on the side you know uh, sort of like a ho as a hobby i guess and before i i got into it you know i got a pretty good you know i bought a camera and i started getting into like you know lighting and sound uh, design just again just as a hobby right so once the <laughs> the fall semester came uh uh, came by, you know, I was like, well, how can I use these newly developed skills, you know, for my classes? And I decided to, um, you know, start creating video content for my environmental policy class. I ended up shooting 60, 61 or 62 videos for that class. So it was a massive, you know, time sink. And I, I spent a lot of time doing that. To tell you the truth, I thought, I'm I'm doing it for myself. I'm, hopefully, the students are gonna uh, enjoy it. But I'm, you know, I'm doing it just to stay mentally engaged. Mm -hmm. it gave me the, the the chance to rework some of my material. I teach this class every every fall, and um, and lo and behold, actually, the students really valued the time that that I spent doing this. I mean, I got the best, you know, teaching evaluations of my career and it was basically based on that new, new content. I also have a, a number of like really awesome colleagues here at uh, Ohio State. So I, I shot like a couple of mini documentaries with, with them, um, like, you know, 15 minutes long, uh, videos basically that we use for the classes on, you know, use of science or, you know, science, um, the controversy over science use in the EPA, things like that. So, um, so yeah, so it was great. And, you know, Hey, and I got to keep the gear. So yeah. <laughs> now, I, now I have it if I need to use it again, but it was really, really fun. You know, a lot of work, um, but it really paid off. It seems like the students really, really appreciated the, the extra work, which made me so happy because sometimes we don't, we don't know, you know, if students really understand the, the amount of time that we put into uh, creating engaging content, both online and when we have to teach face to face. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm sure they did. I mean, 61 videos, just just Titanic, Ramiro. It's oh, uh, it. And you know, the other thing is that we had to 
for each video, I had to obviously upload them on YouTube, create the subtitles. Um, as you know, I have an accent, so YouTube uh, sometimes uh, translates some of the things that I say automatically uh, not very well, so I had to go back and, you know, just manually fix the subtitles. So for each video, you know, it was 10, 12 minutes long, I would spend literally, you know, three, four hours putting it together because I, I actually scripted them. Then, you know, the, sh wow, yeah. the shooting of the videos, you know, just took time just to set the equipment. And so definitely, definitely a fun thing to do, but something that I don't know if I would have done it as, as an assistant professor, for instance, right. in the, in the tenure track, unless, you know, my, my, my school or my department really valued teaching. In this case, you know, in, in our, in our school, we really do. So again, another way in which I've gotten lucky in my career, you know, mm. that, that people really, really value these types of efforts here. Well, so. I think across academia, we all need to be valuing some of that more. I mean, it's anyway, that's a whole other conversation of trying to value a lot of the things that can feel less visible. I mean, so one lesson I feel like I hear from you, Ramiro, is, is that you did this um, not out of like a top-down self-imposed need, but it was almost the opposite of like, no, how do I free myself from a certain frame of mind? And this was actually an outlet for you. And I think that's, that's a lesson we all need to hear where we talk about how privileged we are to be in these positions and we're correct. Like it is an extraordinary privilege. And we still manage to feel kind of beaten down a lot of the time in spite of being in these like very fortunate positions. And I see this in my students as well. It's just like there's there's it's such a wonderful thing to get to be a student. And yet they feel kind of downtrodden a lot of time by all of these obligations. And so it's the question then is like, how do we get to the space where we kind of find the joy and just like, no, I just want to do this for me. And that's not selfish because if you are doing it for you, as you know, as you're seeing in your work, other people are going to appreciate the outcome. Because you're going to do good work. Yeah. Yeah. I think, again, you know, it comes down almost to like institutional incentives um, and, and what gets rewarded and what doesn't. You know, in my case, I'm in a particularly privileged position that, uh, you know, I've already been tenured. I have great colleagues. I have, you know, great students. And so... For me, doing this was a way of uh, being creative, enjoying what I do, and taking advantage of the opportunities I have. You know, not everybody has colleagues like my colleagues. And so, you know, the fact that I could just reach out to somebody and say, hey, do you want to, you know, just shoot a video? I'll come to your place and we'll take, you know, an hour or so and we're going to make it. Yeah, come over. You know, that that sort of stuff, you know, it's it's been, it's been great. But it's also... Um, it's also a way for me to stay true to to the person that I want to be, so my kids can see that you know you have to try to find um, joy in what you do, and 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 you can create if you have the right circumstances around you, you can create those opportunities. Um, so it's a confluence of you know, you know the 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 opportunities that your environment gives you, and then what you do once you recognize those opportunities. Because, you know, I could have just basically, um, I guess I, I, I could have not done it uh, as well. But again, given the circumstances of this year, I, was, I felt like I had to. So it was, again, you know, the planets, sometimes the planets have to align. At the same time, listen, I'm not talking about anything that is, you know, out of this world. It's just like, you know, a new way of teaching 
for this one class. Um, I had a lot of fun doing it. And, you know, if anybody ever wants to talk about how to make the jump, just shoot me an email. Because, <laughs> again, I have, I now have, you know, the experience having done it. And there are things that I wouldn't do again. So fair enough. Yeah. Well, you're kind of living out this phrase you mentioned to me earlier, Ramiro, like I, I am me and my circumstances. That's what you're talking about. You need to, you need to have the right circumstances, but you also need to bring yourself to it. Yeah. I think that's something that, you know, we, we all, we all struggle through our lives to do it. Right. So, yes. um, yeah. So, uh, you know, and, and I've always been very uh, cognizant of the fact that, yeah, I've always been privileged, uh, not only now, you know, I just, I was privileged to be able to get a degree in Argentina. I was privileged to be able to move to the U.S. And, you know, I had good mentors and advisors and my classmates in grad school um, and my students here and my colleagues, you know, I, I, I've really been able to do what I want just because people around me let me do it, you know. Um, and I think that's the case for many of us who are in academia and we often don't really recognize it. And so, like you say, it's easier to sometimes get fixated on the, on the negative side of things. But the thing is that we, we, we have a lot to be thankful for, right? Thanks for listening, everyone. You can find more episodes at your local podcasting app. And we are told that if you give us a good rating there, good things will happen. You can also find our episodes as well as our blog at our website, incommonpodcast.org. The Incommon Podcast is now associated with the International Association for the Study of the Commons, or IASC, and the International Journal of the Commons, IJC. Later on this year, we will be producing content in collaboration with each of these organizations. So look out for that as well. Until next time.